The Pace Line is supported by LAL Cycling. The coast is calling. LAL Shore Collection embodies the spirit and style of the California coast. All LAL products are crafted right here in Southern California for shipment worldwide. Now on to the show. The way Fatty sees it, people and bikes can be like couples. Sometimes there are breakups. If you used to be an avid rider, someone who loved it, but you've been off the bike for a while, how do you get back into it? One way back into it is to ride on a beautiful day or ride in the rain with Patrick's pole on your back. So it's a rain jacket that you can shake dry. By that, I mean you can give it one good shake, like putting a sheet on a bed, just that one whoomp, and all of the water flies off. And we go in search of the craziest race stories and crashes. Over the, the megaphone from the Jeep, it says, in Hebrew, obviously, he's like, don't move. I was like, okay, what happened? He's like, you're in an active landmine field. Don't move. Paceline, the podcast on two wheels. Patrick Hottie and Fatty with the official podcast of redkiteprayer.com. Find us on RKP and on Apple Podcasts and, of course, anywhere else you might find podcasts. This is episode 111 of the Paceline. Guys, some math trivia. Did you know that 111 is a perfect totient number? Oh. And, of course, that means... The integer, it's an integer that is equal to the sum of its iterated totients. Patrick, you know what a totient is, right? Uh, do I have to be honest? <laughs> yes, always. I, okay, then I'm going to admit that for all the different math terminology I've heard in my life, I had never come across totient before today. Me either. Hmm. And that's why Wikipedia is fantastic. I still don't know what a totient is. Oh. There, there are epsilons and other uh, numbers. So, Hadi, mm. a little bit easier one for you. Oh. RKP contributor Hadi, what is the fastest and easiest way to tell that 111 is not oh, a prime number? Please, please. Um, <laughs> Too easy. I was going to say, I was going to comment on Toshin. That sounds like something you put on your breakfast cereal. Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> Because it, all the digits are the same? I don't know. Because, and this this is a, I still don't know why this is true, but it is true. If all of the digits in a number add up to a number that is divisible by three, that number is also divisible by three. One plus one plus one in 111 e equals three, mm -hmm. which is, of course, divisible by three. Sure. So 111 divisible by three. Well, it's you mean a math anything's divisible. Trivia. Anything's divisible by three. You're talking about in whole numbers, though. In other words, <laughs> yes. Divided by three equals a whole number, not not Dude, some decimal. That's... Okay. <laughs> Check you out with the with the proper logic. I only logic. know whole numbers. Once we get past that, uh, okay. Uh, you know, Pi Day the was new... the other day, and Pi Day was what a month ago. So, Pi. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's a good oh, we day. We all know a little bit about Pi. Every day. Somebody is pie sent day, me a pie on pie. pie day. That was really cool. It was a delicious pie too. Oh uh, well, did you ever find out who that was? I did actually. <laughs> now I had to put awesome. out a, a cattle call on Facebook, uh, and I had like eighty people say, "Oh, I sent it to you," uh, but then one included the right sort of clue and say, "Oh, that was that was me." But yeah, the, oh, the, the nice. pie company failed to include the note from him saying, hey, happy pie day. <laughs> <laughs> hey, when someone sends you pie, don't ask questions. Just be happy. I just wanted to give him anyway. credit. That's all. Oh, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. So anyway, I'm Fatty, of course. And I don't really know why I decided to make today's podcast seem like the world's first cycling slash math trivia podcast. <laughs> but I did. Hmm. Hottie, hmm. let's move away from math and get into the ride. Lead us out. Okay, my paceline poll this week needs very little setup, guys. I want to hear your craziest race story. 
Not your best necessarily, not your highest finish, but your craziest race story ever, okay? So think about that and listen to the story I got out of a friend. Hello, Paceliners. Michael Houghton here. Hottie, how are you doing? Uh, again, my Paceline poll this week is your craziest race story ever. And we're going to get to Fatty and Patrick in a second. My crazy race story, it's okay. I've got a couple of them, I would say. Uh, one was uh, I raced in the snow one day up here locally, uh, up at Devil's Punch Bowl. I got up the next day, uh, raced in Northern California. So we finished racing at like four in the afternoon in the snow, drove up to NorCal. I slept on the floor, got up the next day and raced and raced well. It's not, it's a crazy story, I guess. My other crazy race story actually happened on this day. I don't know how many years ago, but it was that San Dimas stage race. I just married the lovely Mrs. Hottie. I invited my in-laws out to watch me race. It was the third stage of the San Dimas stage race, which is a crit in downtown San Dimas. I proceeded to crash in front of my brand new in-laws, flipped right over the bars, <laughs> landed on my butt, ended up in the wheel pit, got to push out, finished the race. They met me in the medical tent afterwards. And we're like, this is the man who's going to take care of our daughter for the rest of our, her life? Indeed it is. So that's, that's about as crazy as it gets for Hottie. So to really reach, I think, a new level of craziness, I'm going to turn to my good friend here, Elon Rubin of Giant Santa Monica. Now, full disclosure, Giant Santa Monica is the shop where I do business. Elon is my partner in crime with all things bikes. We, we talk about bikes and gear all the time. But Elon's got a very interesting story about racing. First of all, Elon's originally from Israel, and he started riding bikes in Israel and became a racer at a, a team, uh, 16, I think it was, 16 years old, and did like a lot of us, started getting competitive and started getting interested in cycling. Uh, but Elon truly has a crazy race story about mountain biking in Israel, one particular race, right, Elon? Correct. So the, it was back, we were talking like 1996, 97, uh, it was a race called Merutz Golan. So Merutz in Hebrew means race, and Golan is in the Golan Heights. So we're talking, we're on the border with Lebanon, Syria, Israel, right? Literally, second race I've ever been in. Mom drove me up there, bikes hanging out of the trunk. We didn't even have a trunk rack at the time, right? Shoot up there. Like I said, about 17 years old, relatively new, but I was expected to do well for my age because, you know, I, had, I was more established than some of the other 16, 17-year-olds out there. So, race kicks off. It's a 60-kilometer loop. So, it's a big, huge loop wow. around, back. You get relatively close to some of the um, borders, you can say. And, and you had, there was a river crossing that they, they anticipated, but they weren't sure how they were going to handle. And the way they were going to handle it was there was going to be a raft that you stuck your bike in, and you basically shimmed yourself across two sets of ropes to get across, and then you took your bike out, and then you continued the last leg with the last stretch to the, to the finish line, which is probably 15K, mm -hmm. right? Everything's going well. It felt good, hydrated, the whole deal. About 40K into the race, there was a water runoff, water, concrete water runoff that led down to a section of the Jordan River. I come flying around the turn, and I see a bike right in the middle of the trail. And I was like, Okay, I got two options. I could try to avoid this and slow down and lose my, the momentum I have for the, the climb out, or I could just try and bunny hop it. I'm 17. I'm going to bunny hop the shit out of this thing. No problem. That didn't work. Front wheel got stuck between the front wheel of this guy's bike in the middle of the trail and his down tube. So you can imagine, basically, I got wedged in there and just lawn darted myself right over the handlebar, right? Yard sale. Freaking camelback over here, helmet over there, the whole deal. Wake up in a field. I shouldn't say wake up, but basically come to like, okay, where'd that, what the hell just happened? I literally still see my bike stuck in the other, other guy's bike in the field. I'm like, all right, there's my bike. I'm like, okay, let's get, get together and see where my stuff is. I got to tell people, races in Israel to this day are escorted by the military simply for, for safety reasons. Yeah, right? So what, what were tensions like? Uh, back then, 96, 97. This yeah. is probably around by the first Antifada. So, I mean, it's, it, wasn't, it wasn't safe, you know? I mean, we're talking armed guards in Jeeps ahead, armed guards in Jeeps behind, and then, you know, eight medical aid as needed. Um, and then even some soldiers riding, even though they weren't fit enough to ride with the full gear, but they were there just in case there was a situation. Wow. So, um, pop myself up in the middle of this field. I'm like, okay, I can see that I'm, I'm clearly bleeding. I can't figure out where. I'm like, all right, well, everything's good. I don't feel like I have a concussion. 
all of a sudden I see the military jeep are probably about 60 yards out from where I was. I'm like, holy shit, I, I, I went for a flight, you know, I, I, I went far. Over the, the megaphone from the jeep, it says, in Hebrew obviously, he's like, don't move. I was like, okay, what happened? He's like, you're in an active landmine field, don't move. I was like, fan-fucking-tastic, right? <laughs> 17 years old. So what they end up doing is they have to come back out. They have to wait for another unit that has the metal detector, get these guys to basically escort me out through the active landmine field. So step here, wait, step here, step here. I'm like, well, my, my, my gear. They're like, F your gear. Just, let's just get you out of here. I'm like, okay. I should also tell people to get to this landmine field, there's a probably about a four to five foot barbed wire fence. I didn't clear it. I went through it. So that's where I was bleeding. Uh, so multiple lacerations all over the place, my face, my neck, my legs. I mean, my kits ripped to shreds. They get me up and over the fence. They're like, well, the water runoff's about, or the, the water crossing is about 10K. The Jeeps can't go through it. They have to go around it. So we can't take you. Here's your bike. Straighten out my handlebar for me. Have fun. Like, okay. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm bleeding. What, uh, you guys have any ideas of like, what I should do? Hands down, the most absorbent material that they had in the Jeep were women's pads. Okay? So, what, hey, they, they work. I have one on my neck. I have one around my eyebrow. To this day, I still actually a missing part of my eyebrow. I had one on my, on my uh, rib cage and several on my legs and one on my, on my, my ass, for lack of better words. Work my way down. Toss my bike into the, into the raft. The guy who's there manning the raft is like, the hell happened to you? It's like, dude, I don't want to talk to you right now. It's like, how am I supposed to get across this? They're like, you're going to shimmy yourself across. So I'm like, oh, fantastic. Awesome. So shimmy myself, myself across. Mind you, this whole, this whole race was only supposed to be about three and a half hours. We're going on hour six with my crash, the Jeep getting to me, you know, pat, patching me up. The getting, minefield. The minefield, like everything, right? Yeah. I get across the water. I only have about 10, 12K to go. But this time it's dusk. I mean, it's getting dark. I come hobbling across the finish line, bar still cockeyed, one hand on the handlebar, literally pedaling with one foot. My mom, my dad, my sister, you know, people who came there are like, where the hell you been? You were, you, were, you know, we, we thought you were going to win this thing for your, right, for your, for your age. And they could see, like, okay. They're like, we heard that there was a nasty crash. We weren't sure it was you. I was like, oh, yeah, it was me. So my 1996 Tange Prestige Bianchi Super Grizzly, shot, bro- broken the hell, kit gone, lake shoes gone. But uh, that was probably my, my craziest crash ever. Yeah, I would say it's probably a pretty crazy story. <laughs> but uh, So we had barbed wire fence, landmines, yep. a shimmied water crossing, yep. and ladies... Uh, sanitary napkins patched all over the all body. over the place. So I think you qualify for the craziest uh, bike race story I've I've heard to date. So now, so my, what happened to your bike racing like, career or future after that? After I recovered, which took a little while, and I got myself a new bike, which was actually funny. Um, my, my my bike after that was a giant of all bikes, which is you know that we're here. Um, I continued racing mountain bikes till I moved to the states, and then I actually got into downhill racing, and then now I do more road. But I still dabble in the mountain. No, no barbed wire fences or active landmine fields here in Southern California, so we're good. <laughs> All right, uh, baselineers, that's it. The, the craziest bike race story has to go to Elon Rubin of Giant Santa Monica. If you want to hear more great stories from Elon, come down to Giant Santa Monica. He's, he's got a lot of them. I think we got the best one out of him. Uh, certainly tops anything that I have. We're going to find out what Fatty and Patrick have, though. Again, my thanks to uh, my good buddy Elon Rubin of Giant Santa Monica. Patrick, Fatty, try and top that. Fatty, oh, I know you've I'm got out. a few. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> I know you've got a few stories. Try and top that one. I couldn't even pretend to. Elon uh, A is a fantastic storyteller. He yeah. had me right there. So, yeah, fantastic storyteller and an amazing story. I mean, terrifying. He, he, he tells it as sort of a fun story, but, I mean – he was a step away or, you know, who, who knows what distance away from death. That's just, I mean, that, that's, that's horrifying. Imagine if he'd rolled around it, but... in pain. I know. No, you just don't oh, want I really to imagine hurt. it. I really hurt. Oh, this yeah. is awful. <laughs> Kaboom. Yeah. Wow. 
So, um, yeah, Elon, kudos to you for telling an amazing story in a way that, yeah, very entertaining. Um, you know, I, I, I thinking about my uh, craziest story is more of a sort of death by a million ant bites. Um, in 2013, I did the Salt to Saint race with my wife, Lisa, uh, a.k.a. The Hammer. And she was working to be the first woman to ever solo that race. And my job was more or less to domestique for her, to, you know, get her across the finish line uh, and, you know, do the best job. Things went really wrong for most of that thing, you know, 420 miles for one thing. But uh, in the first hour, things just went crazy. So even before then, so at the starting line, Imagine, you know, we have a crew truck and it's time for us to go and get in line and uh, our crew chief tries to start the truck and gets the message, security alert, and the vehicle will not start. And it would not start. And we had to leave not knowing when or whether we would they would be able to A, get it started or B, get a different vehicle. We just said good luck and we we left not knowing when we would see them again next we made a wrong turn within the first 3 minutes of the race uh figured that out with actually most of the most of the uh riders um all almost all of us did within 20 minutes of the race starting lisa picked up a goat head in her front tire and when i changed the tube for her um it immediately flatted as well because the tube was defective. Uh, on the downhill for the first descent, Lisa picked up a bee sting uh, on the inside of her, you know, upper thigh. <laughs> With in, you know, things went okay for a little while, and but but by around mile one hundred, I flatted. We had a crew again by then, and they made a quick change for me, but. They were moving so fast that they forgot to check why I had gotten a flat. And the piece of glass that had pierced my tube remained in the tire. I got another flat within 50 feet. We were almost out of tubes by about a third of the race in. Anyway, Lisa had gone on ahead per my instructions. And while I, at the time, could eventually have caught her with one flat's worth of time, two flats put me at a ridiculous distance behind her, and we were each riding alone in a headwind for more than an hour until the crew finally went ahead and told her to just hold on. I was never going to catch her otherwise. We had so many flats that we had to call and have someone go find a find a place that had 80 millimeter stems um, in, I, I don't know, I think it was like a Friday night at 8 p.m. There aren't that many bike shops open then. <laughs> um for half an hour or so, and you know, I, I, I'm a little reluctant to say this, but it is part of the reality. I had both an intense need to poop and a complete inability to do so. And I spent half an hour in a porta potty, just absolutely miserable. It was the worst half hour of my racing life. Food was a problem for us. We made a huge mistake of using untested food. Um, we had taken a lot of the recipes out of the Feed Zone Portables book, which is a great book, but you don't experiment with food during a race. We experimented with the food during the race, paid the price, uh, which was what I was talking about. We did the final two-thirds of the race using nothing but gels and white bread sandwiches, Uh, so 300 miles on nothing but that. And in the final 50 miles, I actually momentarily fell asleep on my bike during a descent. If it weren't for rumble strips, I seriously don't know what would have happened. They, you know, the immediate buzz buzz woke me up and of course my heart rate spiked and I was okay for the rest of the race. But I did briefly, my head nodded. I had what I hear is sometimes called as a micro sleep, just, you know, was out for a second and who knows, I could have gone down easy. In spite of all that, uh, or maybe because of it, <laughs> This is one of my wife's and my most important bonding memories. It was something we really did together. Uh, it was a tough day, and we finished it. It's, uh, in my opinion, 
this crazy stuff that really makes racing great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's probably why that's Elon's first story too when he talks about racing. Yeah. And one of the first ones out of his mouth is is that. I mean, all the stuff he had to get through just to get to the finish line. His finish sucked. I I, I didn't ask him if he finished last, but it doesn't sound like he was too far from the back of that pack, if not the back of it. But yeah. I mean, that's. That's part of it. That's one of the reasons you race. You race for the glory and for the good things and for the stories you get, too. Yep, um, for some, the adventure. Yep, sometimes they go hand in hand and sometimes not. All right, Patrick, the bar's been set pretty high. Go ahead. See, what do you got? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm almost deliberately pulling up lame. I mean, like, I've got some... There, there have certainly been some interesting experiences. There was a race I did in Mississippi years and years ago where it poured on us for the entirety of the race. It was like a flipping monsoon. The rain was coming down so hard that you could see it bouncing up off the ground. There was a slight hill uh, on the course, and it was raining so hard that guys were falling on the hill. It wasn't much of a hill, but it turned the re, uh, the road so slick that people were falling down. I was slipping my tire on the way up and that was even seated. Um, there was, um, a, uh, outside of Lompoc, the state championships one year, uh, I passed within six inches of a rattlesnake on the road, sunning itself, despite the fact that it was totally overcast. And somehow while I was out of the saddle riding by it and I saw it, I picked my front wheel up and moved it six inches to the right uh, away from the snake. But I mean, those are two different races. The The single weirdest race I can ever remember was one spring in New York state uh, doing the, the uh, West point stage race. The road race was at bear mountain and there's this crazy fast 50 plus mile per hour descent and it was cold that morning, like 36 degrees. And uh, we get to the bottom of the descent and you you make a U-turn through this, uh, across this divided highway. And we're on the climb and we're going full out. It's, it's as hard as I've ever ridden in my life. And I look around and there's something wrong with the air, but I'm going so hard I can't figure it out. And we're climbing, climbing. And this is a climb that's long enough that we gain uh, more than a thousand feet on the climb. And finally, looking off into the woods to our right, I realize, oh, there's not just something wrong with the air. It's snowing. Okay. How interesting. It's snowing. Okay. That's fine. Well, we top out at the top of the climb and now it's pretty much a full on snow squall. Uh, It's not just a flurry. And it's the road is wet and you can see accumulation starting to happen at the edges of the road. We get about 5K from the finish and the finish is downhill with a left hand bend and it's off camber. There have been awful crashes in this finish uh, pretty much every year I've gone to it. And so my little group of four or six riders, I forget how many guys we were down to, we knew some guys were up the road. We thought it was at least four or five. So we really didn't think we were sprinting for anything. And so we're all turning and talking to each other saying, we're not sprinting for this, right? Yeah, no, no, this is insane. This this race is so crazy. The conditions are so bad. There's no way we're sprinting. And we're like, oh, okay, we'll just sit and whoever is front in, in the pole will be the first across the line. We get to 300 meters to go. We're all sprinting full out, 39 miles an hour. We, we managed to cross the line without going down. Turns out in, I came in second in our group, and that ended up being fourth in the race and helped my team get the points it needed to win the race overall. Yeah, you know, the, the stories that come from mid to the back of the pack seem to always be the best. You know, I, I don't know if Peter Sagan, after winning Perry Bay, has a great, crazy race story. He did, like, fuss with his own equipment during the ride. But yeah. I bet you all the crazy stories were the guys on the back struggling, mm-hmm. getting flat, who fell four times, who had to stop and pee in the Forest of Arnberg in front of fans or something like that. That's where all the nutso stories are. The, the easy stories are up front. Oh, yes, so you won. So, Fatty, I'll end with this. Don't race for glory. Race for a story. 
<laughs> Amen. I like that. It's a it's a good good maxim to live by, and a very nice Paul Hottie and uh, with a huge lead out by Elon. So yeah, thanks again for that one, Elon. My poll this week is a question, and it comes to me via Twitter. Uh, at least most recently, although it's a question that I've heard a lot of times back when I bo- uh, when I blogged a lot. It's a simple one, and that said, the answer probably is not all that easy. If you used to be an avid rider, someone who loved it, but you've been off the bike for a while, how do you get back into it? Patrick, that's a question you've heard before. Oh, sure. Oh, did you want me to answer it? <laughs> no, I just wanted you to acknowledge that I'd asked it. Okay. Yeah, and I, I have gotten that question before. <laughs> no, I want to know the answer. Come on. You know, to me. We're <laughs> recording a podcast, guy. <laughs> Uh, and bad are sorry. So to me, you know, I'm a guy who likes data. I like computers. I like knowing what I've done, but this is absolutely the occasion where you take the Garmin off the bike. Every piece of data that you could possibly collect needs to be neutralized and just go out and ride and only do the things that feel good. If you want to rip off a sprint, Um, or go charging up a hill out of the saddle, if that feels like the thing to do, do that thing. But more than anything else, it's just a matter of you need to do whatever makes the ride enjoyable. Focus on having a good time. Don't focus on the fitness. If you're riding consistently, and I mean, even three days a week will make a big difference, right? Just ride consistently, Mm -hmm. enjoy yourself, and the rest of it will come. But it's so easy as cyclists who've been fit in the past to want to rush that process and then end up disappointed. Oh my God, we are so well wired for that. It's really kind of sad. Yeah. You know, uh, you make me think of a, a, a while back, a while back, a few years ago, Lisa really got into Strava and it was all about the KOMs, QOMs, I guess, for her. For a while, and then she stopped having fun riding. It just really started hating it. It wasn't until she just put away Strava for a while. I wonder how many people have stopped enjoying their bikes because they got too much into every ride is a race, right? They, they were riding for glory instead of for a story, <laughs> to go back to what Hadi said. Yeah. But Hadi, there's a twist to that question as well, right? Mm-hmm. That as people who do love riding, you've almost certainly come across people who have kind of fallen out of love with the bike. Mm-hmm. How do you help get people back onto the bike? Well, I, first of all, I don't try to push or prod or suggest mm-hmm. too strongly at all. The case I'll point to is my brother-in-law. He actually helped me get into cycling. He's the guy that guided me and said, here's the equipment you want to buy. He made suggestions on things I wanted to do. When I first met him, I was a golfer. He was the avid rider, the guy out there training all the time, working on his game, talking about riding, into bikes, bike commuting all the time. This is when he was first dating my sister. I remember meeting him for that first time, in fact, at my parents' house. We were having dinner. There he was talking about cyclocross racing. I'm listening to him talking about riding in dirt, grass, sand, running and jumping over things with his bike. I'm thinking, what the hell is this guy all about? What is this type of riding all about? I didn't even understand it at all. Now the tables have turned. Now I'm the one with all the bike stories. And my brother-in-law is the one looking at me wondering, what the hell is all that riding about? Because he has kind of put the bike aside in life. His life has gone on for him. He still has lots of interests. Uh, interest he and I share, but cycling is not this major component of his life as it once was. The times I did ride with him back then when I first started and he was into it, I had great times with him. He was way better than me and still is in in certain circumstances. I mean, I can outclimb him now, but put him on a piece of single track, he'll probably smoke me. He still has all his bikes and he still rides them, but just not like he used to. The way I approach him is just, I just keep an open door with him. He knows I would love to do rides or an event with him. And when we have ridden some stuff, uh, by there's no way do I try to impose my will on him. I just let it happen. If he wants, if he says, yeah. hey, let's go for a ride, cool, let's go for a ride. It's up to him. And I'm hopeful that someday he says, hey, yeah, let's sign up for such and such event. We'll do it together. I'd be 
I'd be grateful and glad to, to join him. My sister, too. Uh, she used to be into writing quite a bit. Uh, now the most of the writing she does is teaching spin classes at the local gym. Another one. Uh, I, I love writing with her. She's one of the types that goes, well, I can't keep up with you. I don't want to hold you back, blah, blah, blah. That's not what it's about. I try to just emphasize with both of them. It's about the camaraderie, being together, writing together. That's all I want to do. So I try to soft sell it to anybody who I would like to see get back on the bike and, and go out riding with. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder, it, that must be the most common thing every cyclist hears. Oh, I can't ride with you. I can't keep up with you. As if every ride were a race. And that is, you got to come up with an answer that is ready for that to say, you know what, I'm riding to have fun and have a great conversation and to see the outside and to enjoy the fact that we're in Utah and wow. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, you know, I'm trying to get a workout and I've got to get my cardio and I've got to, you know, keep my heart rate above X, right? It's, I'm kind of this year, I'm stripping it down to what cycling was in the first place. Um, I'm riding a lot less actually this year than I was. Uh, I'm way quite a bit more and I have no race expectations at all apart from doing the Breck Epic. I, you know, I'm, I'm doing some things, but I'm not caring about them. But I am having fun every ride, and I think that's what people need to hear. It's like, you know, forget about all of the racing, the Strava, everything, and remember what you liked about riding and do that again. Mm -hmm. So whether you whether you, for yourself or for other people that uh, used to love bikes but aren't loving them so much, strip out the stuff that is extraneous and get back to what you liked in the first place. Sticking with that story – Patrick, it's your turn to take a poll. Okay. So, guys, last weekend, uh, I was in Park City for a product introduction. And, yes, uh, Fatty, you did not hear from me. I was yeah. I was in your state for something like 26 hours. Um, <laughs> I think, Fair enough. I think the technical term is captive audience. Um, so, Gore, the company behind the membranes that keep us comfortable in most of our nasty weather cycling clothing, they released a new jacket. Please forgive me for what I'm about to say. Gore introduced the Gore Wear C7 Gore-Tex Shake Dry Stretch Jacket. That's that's easily <laughs> the most Ill, inelegant product name I've run across in the last five years, maybe 10. Uh, now, while the name is inelegant, on the other hand, the product is quite elegant. So it's a rain jacket that you can shake dry. By that, I mean you can give it one good shake, like putting a sheet on a bed, just that one whoomp, and all of the water flies off. Think child-blowing dandelion. Whoom. Not only that, it has six stretch panels in it that are also waterproof. This is the only waterproof jacket I've ever encountered that offered any stretch at all. I'm going to say that Gore does a great job in patterning. Uh, the fit on this jacket is close, but not restrictive. And the stretch panels allow it to be a more form-fitting jacket than its predecessor, the C5, which was the first uh, two-layer uh, two uh, jacket that they ever, re uh, ever released. Now, there are features of this jacket that I admit are less than stellar. First, it comes in black or very, 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 very dark gray. Um, hmm. Second, it's $370. And that is a whole lot of money to spend on a jacket you will only wear when it rains. <laughs> but if you live in a place with a lot of rain, it's probably a really good investment. The bigger problem to me is the color, truly. The folks at Gore told us how hard it is to get pigments to stick to the Gore membrane. It's so slick, which is why it can be shaken dry, right? That pigments don't stick well. And by the time they have enough pigment on it to make it a bright color, it doesn't breathe anymore. <laughs> so it's a, it's a pretty strange problem, you know? Uh, I had never heard it explained that way. And so now I'm more understanding of why it's black, but it's still black and it scares me to ride that on open roads. The question I have for you guys is given how far rainwear has come just in the last 10 years, does the quality of a rain jacket influence your willingness to ride in wet conditions? Fatty, you live in a place hmm. that in my experience gets either sunshine or snow. 
do you even ride in the rain? And if now, if not, uh, what would persuade you to? Well, we do get some rain. And in, in this time of year in particular, we get rain. Um, that said, I got to say that the dark grayness of a rain jacket is a deal breaker for me, at least uh, on the road. Um, I mean, you're talking about, you know, of course, riding in the road in dark colors is a little worrisome. It's a rain jacket, so you're riding on the road in a dark color, and it's raining outside, which means visibility is lower, and almost by definition, cloud cover means it's going to be darker. Uh, I'm not going to ride in something that is not high-vis and reflective, period. Um, That said, you know, maybe this would be a fantastic mountain biking rain jacket, but I don't do a ton of mountain biking in the rain because I don't want to ruin the incredible single track that I have in my backyard. Yeah. So uh, I I actually am okay with riding in the rain. Um, it doesn't sound like this jacket's going to do it for me just because of the unfortunate uh, fact that it, it's going to make me much, much less visible. And I worry about that a lot more than I used to. Um, I've heard too much too often, too recently about cyclists getting hurt and killed. And I need to be high vis all the time and in the rain, uh, doubly so. So yeah, that's no knock about against Gore. Like you say, I find the quality, the make uh, of their product great. The $370 actually doesn't bother me at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my most recent rain jacket is about 10 years ago. And it's been a good jacket for that long. I don't think I spent 300 or I don't remember what I, what I spent on it, but it doesn't matter. A good quality jacket uh, is going to last you a decade and cost sort of dissolves in that amount of time. If it's great, fine. But this is lacking a very important feature for me. So that's all, that's what I have to say on that. Okay, cool. Howdy. Now, I know you've done your share of training in the rain as well as racing in the rain. Are you still willing to train if you have a good jacket? Well, I I always say my best rain jacket right now are the 350 days it does not rain in Southern California. That's my rain jacket. There's just too many (laughs) non-rain days here to, to purposely or even have to go out and train in the rain. And what I do keep here are just what I call just in case jackets, just in case it, it does rain and I'm caught out. I've got, I've got like a little rain vest. I've got a couple of rain jackets. So in, my, in this current environment, in, living here in SoCal, there's not a lot of reason to invest that kind of money in, in a rain jacket. Now, if I lived in Seattle, Portland, Minneapolis, mm-hmm. some of these other cities, and you know I was trying to get fit at the time of year when you need to get fit, for upcoming spring and summer racing, yeah, you're going to have to probably get out there and slog it around in the rain. And staying dry is a way to keep yourself going and keep your, that means if you can stay dry and stay warm, you're going to make sure you finish that three or four hour ride or whatever you're scheduled to do that day. So 370 doesn't sound like too much to me. If if I have a near guarantee that I'm going to stay dry and warm, I'm, I wouldn't be above that. But for SoCal, I mean, I, I can't imagine they're going to spend a lot of time or marketing dollars in Southern California with that type of jacket. I'm sure that piece is mostly going to show up in Northwest, Northeast, and and the South, too, where they get plenty of rain. How about you, Patrick? Would you buy this jacket? Oh, not in black. Uh, I really yeah. like the jacket. So I took it out yesterday after getting back. It was supposed to rain, and I thought, oh, I'll just ride my way into the rain, and I'll find out how it is. But I live uh, about two miles from the entrance to a bike path, and so I just made a beeline directly there and rode the bike lane on my way there. I figured I was reasonably safe and got on the bike path and the impending rain stopped impending. And so it never rained on me. Uh, but, you know, I, I had the jacket on for a while uh, about uh, at about the three quarter mark in the ride. I pulled over to take it off because I was just that warm at that point. Mm-hmm. But and, yeah, 
Does it stuff into a jersey pretty well then? Yeah. I guess you had a chance so, to do that. So there's a, a, a central back pocket on it that reverses out. You've got a, a mm-hmm. zipper once you stuff the entire jacket into that mesh pocket. So it's kind of breathable still. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, it's about the size of a grapefruit if you flatten the grapefruit out some. So it, mm-hmm. it'll fit in a pocket. Um, and I suppose if you sat on it, you could make it even smaller. Um so yeah, it it uh it packed nicely and you know, while it was on, I was very impressed with the fit. And it was one of those things that even though it wasn't raining, it still felt like it was somewhat breathable. I would like it a whole lot. It, you know, the other thing it seems to me like they ought to consider is just to put a lot of reflective stuff on it. I still like yeah. color, but if you put a whole lot of reflective stuff on it, and even if the logos are, are reflective, and I haven't actually checked into that yet, there just aren't enough of the logos uh, to justify, uh, you know, the, to, to make a case for its visibility. It's just not sure. there. And that really does make me nervous. You know, people talk about blinky lights and whatnot. And I, I don't know that I really believe that they do all that much. The big problem is if somebody's busy texting their BFF, I don't care how bright the light is if they don't bother to look up. Yeah. So, well, I mean, obviously nothing's going to save us from everything, but uh, basically all of our pieces need to contribute to the solution, right? You got to have blinky. If you're going to be out in the rain on the road you know, it's the driver's responsibility to not hit you, but uh, I'm not putting my faith in that for the same reason you're not. And yeah, I, I need my jacket. I need my shorts. I need my shoes. I need everything to call as much attention to me as possible. I think that's enough about that. I would say I am looking forward to version 2.0 of that jacket because it might be something that would pull me through in my rain days for the next 10 years. Let's move on to the paceline picks, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I've got acclamation. The, <laughs> and of course, the affirmation. The I, I like to think that I have acclamation. <laughs> well, you're higher the, than the, I the am. The acclaimed paceline picks, <laughs> which is <laughs> the part of the show, of course, where we give a little bit of attention to something that is usually, but not necessarily bike related, that we want to talk about. I'm going to kick off with mine. And I'm a little bit surprised to be picking this particular pick, but I am because I love them. It is the Goo Energy Labs 25th anniversary birthday cake flavored gel. OMG. The idea of it is just terrible. I should not like this. I generally don't like the super sweet gels. Cucumber mint is more my speed. I like the stuff that has a little bit of bite. But... I really like this gel. <laughs> uh, I like it a lot. It it tastes like uh, you know those tubs of Betty Crocker vanilla cake frosting that you can <sighs> that you can get at the grocery store, just like that. And it's a hundred calories of energy gel that tastes like white cake with vanilla frosting. And make sure you drink water after it because it is cloyingly sweet. I would not say that if you were doing a long ride that all of your gels should be this birthday cake flavored gel. But it was a clever idea from Goo for their 25th anniversary to make themselves a really big cake. And I like it. It tastes delicious. It's silly. It's frivolous. But it's still 100 calories. It goes down easy. Wash it down with some water. I'm a fan. That's my pick, and I am sticking with it. Mm. Um, yeah, and sticky, yeah, definitely. But all gels are, yeah. right? Patrick, uh, have either of you guys tried this? Yes, you actually took my pick, bastard. <laughs> I picked your pick. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean. <laughs> well, I got there first, man. <laughs> I was always a finger-in-the-buttercream kid. I, I love oh, yeah. cake icing. I always want the quarter piece because extra icing, right? Yeah. That stuff Dude, is fantastic. Me too. And I'm with you. On a 100-degree day, I don't think I could get that down. But in a cool spring race, OMG, just the best thing ever. Isn't that funny that a, a frosting-flavored gel has captured our attention? It's good. <laughs> it's it just it's really wrong. Is. It's evil. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, it's <laughs> but it's good. Yeah, it's utterly decadent. And you know, when you're when you're borderline bonky, <laughs> best thing ever. Uh, anyway, that's not my pick now. Uh, but it gives me what is your pick? Uh, well, my pick is actually RKP has something else on the calendar. Uh, this will be our first ever actual event. It'll involve custom bikes, cool bike rides, beer, good food, and a killer location. It's called the Red Kite Rendezvous, and that's spelled Ronde as in Ronde van Vlaanderen, R-O-N-D-E, mm-hmm. and then A-E-T, French for and, and vous as in you in French. So the mm-hmm. tour and you. It'll be here in Santa Rosa, and it will be held at the Astro Motel. I've already got confirmation mm-hmm. off on a few brands that will be here, uh, including Black Cat, Argonaut, and Hamston Cycles. Uh, there are going to be plenty oh, of wow. plenty of other brands will be here as well. Uh, it'll be two days of riding. We will recreate uh, what is rapidly becoming the world famous old Kaz route. Uh, so we'll drive out to Occidental Saturday morning. We'll do that ride and then come back to the Astro and serve up great food and lots of beer. Did I ever mention that this is the town where Pliny the Elder is made? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not oh. on this show. I don't know. Well, I guess I have now. Um, and then, you know, so we'll hang out and eat and talk cool bikes, uh, Saturday evening, Sunday morning, we'll get up, we'll go for a ride in Annadale. Um, looks like there'll be a fun stopping point midway. I don't have full confirmation on that yet, but we're in negotiations. Um, and then we'll turn around, head back, everybody will get showers and then head home. Uh, so it'll be a whole lot of fun. You know, this is my idea of the perfect weekend. You got bikes, you got a cool place to hang out. You've got all the best beers in a town known for making great beer. Uh, And then some very, very cool people to hang out with and go for a ride with. Uh, Yeah, very much my idea of a good time. It'll be October 12th through 14th. I'm pleased to say that after much work, that is a weekend that does not conflict with anything from the grasshoppers or bike monkey. That was not easy to do. Or any of the, <laughs> any of the really big cross races in Northern California. Um, so, yeah, it was a little bit like a game of Twister trying to find the right weekend to do this. Uh, this is also wine country prime time. So uh, a lot of the biggest, boldest wines, those grapes will be getting picked that time of year. So we may get some wonderful scents of uh, fresh grapes. So I'll have a link uh, to the announcement in our show notes. Dude, that's a big pick. Yeah. That 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 feels more like a poll than a pick. Yeah. I'm, well, we're going to have to talk more about that because okay. uh, I'm figuring that I'm going to have to dip into the fatty uh, biking budget, make a trip out there. That sounds really awesome. Three of us have never ridden together. Maybe this is the moment we have to look at that. Yes. Hottie. Yes. Final pick of the pace line. It's yours. Yeah. You know, it seemed inevitable that Peter Sagan would one day win Perry roubaix And as long as Specialized stayed underneath him, the Big S and its landmark Roubaix bike would also be on top of the podium again. Specialized has notched a half dozen wins at the race it named after its endurance bike. That's six in 10 years, an impressive record. I first became aware of the Roubaix at Interbike when a Specialized rep gave me a sneak peek of the frame they were working on. I don't remember the year, but I do remember thinking, I gotta land one of those as soon as it comes out. Not only did I land one, I have landed three, and I still have one, an SL4. It is stripped right now, but I refuse to get rid of it because it fits so good and does remarkably well off-road. I've never abused a road bike more than I have that Roubaix. One of my favorite moments of this Perry roubaix was with 30K to go. Sagan was in a two-man break. He went to the team car, grabbed some food and a tool. He then made his own adjustment to his stem. The stem that sits on top of the Roubaix's most talked-about feature since the use of zerts in the seat stays and fork, the future shock. Frankly, the addition of the future shock, the suspension piece between the stem and the top headset bearing, was a bit of a shock to those of us who have loved that bike for so long. But Specialized has stood by it and got its sponsored riders to believe in it too. And now, all Specialized has to do is point to the 2018 Perry roubaix as proof. 
Specialized is at times a polarizing company. They've pulled some stuff on small companies and brands that makes you shake your head. And while it's anyone's guess who really developed the endurance road bike, there's no doubt that Specialized legitimized it as a proper race machine and a bike I have truly enjoyed hammering over the years. So my pace line pick, and again on the top step of the podium, the Specialized Roubaix. A good pick. Mm -hmm. And I got to say that Lisa's favorite road bike ever, also a Roubaix. So, you know, there you go. Some some uh, was the, uh, some positive yeah, things being said. Yeah, the first road bike I bought for Mrs. Hottie was a Roubaix as well. Um, and I'll, I have to, I'll have to give credit where credit is due. I mean, uh, after reading a lot of uh, Patrick Brady's stuff about Geo and about how bikes uh, really should be designed for the rest of us and not for those guys in the pro peloton, I mean, I was convinced when I saw the Roubaix, yeah, that's – that's the idea right there. A bike for the rest of us. Yet still fast. I mean, still a legitimate mm-hmm. race bike. It's a no great question. bike. So, Patrick, what's coming up on RKP? Uh, well, I'll be posting the post uh, uh, announcing uh, the Red Kite Rendezvous uh, very shortly. But uh, speaking of rain, earlier this week, I posted my review of the 7 Mesh Corsa jersey which is a lot like a GABA from Castelli, but with a different fit, uh, made a little bit more for real people like you and me. Given the rain most people are seeing right now, I think it's worth checking out. All right, fair enough. And I think that's a wrap for episode 111. One last reminder, find us on Apple Podcasts, take a moment, give us a five-star rating, and if you're feeling super-duper generous, write a review too. Most importantly, tell your cycling friends about us because we are. All need practice talking in the real world. For Hottie and Patrick, I'm Fatty. Thanks for listening to episode 111 of The Pace Line. No, I'm uh, so tired after this uh, race, but uh, I have to say this year, i never been involved in some crash. I never felt tired, and uh, after I just save energy, and after I just did one, one uh, uh, step forward, like higher attack,